0: Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, we'll be looking at the first 14 verses of this book. Excuse me, first 13 verses of this book, or this chapter. Concerning the work of the Spirit, it could be said that uh, rather than the Acts of the Apostles, this book could be easily called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And we'll see that coming out through today in this passage before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for us help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word today, uh, this particular chapter in this book is very full and it's very ripe with meaning. Um, it is one that we've all heard and seen and heard different interpretations of, and and sometimes I think, Lord, can be a confusing passage, and so we pray that you would help us with it as we come to it, that we would see you, first and foremost, our need for you um, in this passage, that we would see how the Spirit is even now working in the church, and that we... Must be more aware of this spirit, and so Lord, help us with that. It's in Your name we pray, Amen. So, in order to introduce this text, you can—I'd have you turn to Luke chapter seven. I'm going to be paraphrasing a lot of the the, uh, book, or a lot of this chapter from Luke seven. And reading some of it, but you can turn there to kind of follow along with me if you want to. Luke chapter seven, verses eighteen through thirty-four. And what's going on here in Luke seven? Um, Jesus has been doing some miracles there in these these couple of cities. He he heals a centurion's son, and then he. Raises a widow's son from the dead in these two cities, Capernaum and Nain. And at this time, John the Baptist is in prison and he is hearing about these events and it has him thinking. And so he is going to send his own disciples to check and see if what's going on is legitimate um it's a good question right go out and see if these if this is really the christ is what his disciples go to ask him they wanted to see if he was the real deal or should he be waiting for another i guess this reminds us that there aren't any heroes of men and women in the bible because even john the baptist had a lack of faith here but how does jesus answer his question he has those disciples spend the day with him as he heals the sick. As he does miracles. And he says, go back and tell him what you have seen and what you have heard. Now, do you think everyone there is convinced? Of course not. The Pharisees are there. The lawyers are there. They see what's going on and they reject it. And then verses thirty-four and 30 through 30, uh, 31 through 34 say this. Jesus concerning or responding to their rejection to what then shall i compare the people of this generation and what are they like they are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another we played the flute for you and you did not dance we sang a dirge and you did not weep for john the baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine and you say he has a demon The son of man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Interesting characterization of Jesus, a glutton and a drunkard. How does Jesus characterize these Pharisees for saying those things? They're like children who are playing games in the street who can't decide what game they're going to play. They're fickle and they're bored little children. They had seen the works and heard the works of John the Baptist. And what did they do? They rejected them. They had seen and heard the works of Jesus and heard his, and heard his words. They had saw a man raised from the dead during a funeral procession. But yet, they reject Jesus as the Son of God, as the Messiah. It's almost as if they're saying, here we are, Jesus, entertain us. They even attempt to dismiss the whole thing by dismissing Jesus as a drunk and a partier. Kind of the common rabble of the day. In our text today, the Pharisees and the other bystanders are going to say similar things concerning the Spirit's work amongst the disciples. They're going to see the work of the Spirit and they're going to dismiss the whole episode as a drunken party early in the morning. Kind of odd. Why is that? Because they cannot attribute the Spirit's work it's something that they cannot explain. They cannot attribute it to something they can explain so they just kind of explain it away as drunkenness, just like they did with Jesus, just like they did with John the Baptist. Does this sound familiar at all? I think in the church today, particularly in the Reformed Church, we often try to explain away the work of the Spirit. Or worse, we don't even really factor it at all into our planning as we go about the business of church. We make plans as if our effort Our effort is the sole factor in determining our success or failure of the church. Granted, churches aren't supposed to just sit and wait. You know, kind of just sit here and do nothing and wait. But they are to be doing the work of ministry. But I think many times our frustration with ministry, our frustration with the work of ministry comes because we forget the promised spirit is at work. And so as we look at this passage, I want us to consider two main ideas from it. The coming Spirit, or the coming of the Spirit, and the work of the Spirit. With that, let's read from Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. Please stand as we read from God's Word. Acts 2, verses 1 through 13. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And they are all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, They are filled. With new wine, Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So, first and foremost, I do feel the need to say that this text is very swollen with meaning, with questions, even more questions. I can't even be get get close to answering them all in one passage uh, or in one sermon. I think that would be silly. And so when I come to a text like this, and this is how I do any text of scripture, I'm going to, most of the time, I'm going to focus on the fallen condition there in that text. It shows us our need for Christ. It would be easy to take this text and make it some sort of academic exercise, and easy. We could be here for days talking about what's going on in this text and the ramifications of that. So with that, you know, I'd. Obviously, after the service, we can have a time of question and answer during Sunday school time, if you'd like. But I don't think that would be very helpful during the sermon. Uh, So, again, I plan to focus our attention on what what the Spirit is doing in this passage, and then later we can deal with any questions you may have. Because I do understand this has a lot of a lot of meaning here. And so, for the text, turn with me quickly to Genesis chapter eleven. Genesis chapter 11, a very familiar story to you. This is the story of the Tower of Babel. I'm going to read here verses 1 through 9 just to help us get a picture of what's going on. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they made brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. And the Lord came down. See the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and there confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them, dispersed them from, from there over the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Interesting. Almost the reverse of what we're reading this morning. It's exactly what's going on. The people there wanted to build a temple. They wanted to make a name for themselves. The Lord saw this. He struck them down, causing confusion, causing everyone to speak different languages. You can imagine being there that day. You would probably be just listening for someone that you understood. Finding that group, going off and doing your own thing. Which is exactly what they did. They dispersed from there. After this, what happens in Genesis? Well, if you start at verse chapter 12, God takes one of those nations that's off worshiping other gods and says... I will be your God and you will be my people. Now go to the place that I will show you. And the rest is history. From that nation, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. Finally, Jesus. And then what does Jesus say? You will receive power when the Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses to who? To the ends of the earth. To all those nations that I promised your father Abraham would be a blessed would be blessed through you and now here in Israel all those nations are together hearing the gospel and many hundreds of them are saved rather than being dispersed they are gathered together under one head Jesus Christ even now he is gathering people for himself from among those scattered nations I think that's what this text is showing us, how this all began. So that brings us to the first point, the coming of the Spirit, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. Pentecost was a feast of the Jews. Pentecost is the 50th day after the Sabbath that is associated with Passover. So the term Pentecost is actually a Greek term. For the Jewish feast called Shavuot, the Feast of Weeks, sometimes called the Feast of the Harvest, or the Feast of First Fruits, is one of the feasts that the Jewish people were to observe as a people. This is significant that this is a time of feasting, right? Because all those people are going to be there, not only Jews from all nations, but also God-fearers, those who kind of ...recognize the Hebrew God as being the God of the universe... ...but aren't Hebrews, so they've been shut out of all of the Hebrew worship... ...and the, the, the circumstance associated with the temple. There's an area in the temple for them to worship... ...but they don't have all this, the ceremony associated with that... ...but they're there in town to worship. They're there to observe the feast. When was the last time that they all came in to see the feast? There were some busy things going on that weekend... Well, there was a man crucified that weekend. The Passover Sabbath. The day before that Sabbath, the man was crucified, Jesus Christ. By the hands of the Jewish leadership and the Roman government. This time they come and Jesus is gone. Not because he's dead, but because he is risen. He's at the right hand of the Father. And he is hearing those disciples preach the gospel. All those people. This text tells us that the disciples were there together in one place. And we aren't to believe that it's just the 12, but this is the 120 that were mentioned in chapter 1. Remember, they were all up in that upper room, praying together, waiting expectantly for the the Spirit to come. And as they're there, the Spirit comes. The sound like a mighty rushing wind is what we're told. Tongues of fire come down and rest upon each one. What's going on here? Well, the rest of Scripture can give us some some hints, I think. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, this is the baptism of Jesus. And John is talking about what's going on with baptism, and he's talking about his own ministry. And John the Baptist says this I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor. He will gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. Why fire? What does fire represent? All throughout the Old Testament and the New Fire is a symbol of purification. It represents removing something that is there and keeping the good every single time. Remember in Isaiah 6, the angel touches the lips of Isaiah. Why? I am a man of unclean lips, is what Isaiah said. The angel touched his lip with that hot coal, burning his lips, representing the cleansing of of Isaiah, preparing him for ministry. This fire that has come down, these tongues of fire is what the scriptures say, come down as a symbol of the Spirit coming on them. Not a fire that's consuming them. Note, the Lord is fully capable of consuming them. He is called a consuming fire many times, and he does do that to the chaff that he is throwing out. But this fire does something else. To the believer, it cleanses them of their sin. It's what we read from the Heidelberg this morning. Who cleanses? The blood of Jesus and the Holy Spirit cleanses us of our sin. This is symbolic of the many prophecies in the Old Testament of the Spirit's work. Todd read one from Isaiah 44 this morning. From Joel 2, we've read another one. There's many prophecies of the Old Testament of the Spirit's work. When the Spirit comes. What is He going to do? Ezekiel 36, we've read many times. He's going to take our heart of stone. He's going to replace it with a heart of flesh. Representing the cleansing that's going on in our own lives. Anytime we think that the Spirit's work is diminished in the least, we have to remember that the Spirit's work began... Before time eternal. A lot of times I think. We're afraid to talk about the spirit. Because of some of the prevailing culture. In Christianity and in evangelicalism. But consider what the spirit has done. Throughout creation. Verse 2. Of the Bible. Genesis 1-2. He hovers over the deep. Why? Why? Watching over his creation. That word hovers is just like what a mother hen does with her chicks. Covers them up. Cares for them. Watches over them. He's been with his people since the beginning. Protecting. Guiding them. Supernatural strength at times. Courage at others. In his greatest work. What did the spirit do? He came into the lives of dead sinners. Like you and I. And breathed into us. His very breath, just like he did with Adam in those first first days, except this breath that was breathed into us gives us a new life, awakens us, awakens our spirit to this new life. And in so doing, what does he do? He not only just does that and then he didn't run off at that point. He inhabits us. He continues To speak to our own spirits, reminding us that we are his, because we oftentimes want to remind ourselves just the opposite. So the spirit of God talks to our spirit saying, no, you are indeed my child. He gives us the words to say when we don't know them. He guides us in our steps, and our actions, keeping us from being as bad as we could be. All the while making us to be more and more like the sun. And when we die, guess who's going to be there to bring us home? The spirit. In none of that do we need to add anything crazy. Because all of that is miraculous enough. It's incredible the spirit's work, continued work in our lives. And the sin of some, as we know, is to make the spirit some sort of circus act. Does parlor tricks, causing people to shake or laugh or whatever other crazy stuff. But I'm afraid that an equally dangerous sin besets those of us who would easily shake our fingers at the circus acts. Because in our minds, we forget that the spirit... And only the Spirit is capable of changing hearts, of going before us, even before we would get up or do anything, giving us assurance that we are His. Rather than rely upon the Spirit, what do we want to do? We want to rely on our ability, on ourselves. All of a sudden, the Gospel says that the Spirit causes the, the, the gospel says that the spirit causes us to walk in his ways. Well, it becomes a work based thing for us. We want to walk in our own ways out of fear of looking like some circus folk. We might be tempted to call the spirit's work drunkenness like the Pharisees did in the passage that we read today. And so I think this is a warning for us, brothers and sisters. The spirit is working even now. And without the work of the Spirit, guess what would happen to the church? It would be folded up. It'd be done. It would shatter. The Spirit will keep His people. He will hold them up. And I understand that it's easy to, it's easy to want to speak light of the Spirit's work. Why? Because we don't want to be seen. That's crazy. I understand that. But let's be honest. Next week's passage shows us that Peter takes this opportunity as being called a drunk. And what does he do with it? He preaches the gospel. Hundreds are saved. We worship a God that is triune. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The Spirit's works seems the most mysterious to us. Well, because at times it is. What does the text compare him to? What do all the texts compare him to? The Greek word and the Hebrew word both for spirit are is the word for wind. This is the spirit's work. It's hard sometimes for us to quantify it. Imagine how they felt that day in the upper room as the spirit came down upon them. But the spirit is here, a constant reminder to us that we are not our own, that we are bought with a price. And we are not deserving of his presence here with us, but he is here with us anyway. So let us then endeavor to trust more and more in the Spirit's work in our lives. And that brings us to the next point the work of the Spirit. So after they were filled with the Holy Spirit, these tongues of fire came down upon them, they were filled with the Spirit says they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, this is the Spirit's work here. The text is very plain. The plain reading of this text is that these tongues were actual languages that many in attendance could understand in their own tongue. You can imagine this. I mean, I, I can try to imagine being in the upper room and this happening and this event kind of spilling out into the street and And many, many people hearing their language all of a sudden and wondering, those people are Jewish. Why am I hearing my language come out of their mouth? You can imagine the gathering of people that is coming up. This is not normal. Why is this going on? Again, this is a complete reversal of what we read in Genesis 11. Everyone is hearing That language, all those different languages, but all hearing the same message. The languages don't go away. But in that particular moment of redemptive time, the Spirit used this method to have the gospel preached to all the nations. This is significant. Paul talks about it later. He talks about this gift later in his writings. We are to understand from his letters that this gift extended beyond just this day. This wasn't a one-time event of tongues. However, I think that the gift was used for a time in the church and is probably extinct in the church today. That is my particular stance on that, though um, I I can be convinced otherwise, but I I don't believe I will be. We can go into a larger discussion of that later if you'd like. But one thing is for certain, this wasn't just gibberish that was being spoken that day. There were real languages. That the crowd heard and understood. That is except for one group. They didn't understand anything that was being said. They mocked the speakers. And they said they're filled with new wine. Meaning those people are drunk. Which is to be contrasted with the other people. That said, verse 12, they were amazed and perplexed. But at least their question was one of wanting to know, what does this mean? Obviously, this is a major moment. Peter uses it to preach the gospel, which we'll hear about next week. And I think it shows us the response typical to the mighty works of God, which is what they, you know those, those men and women came out of that upper room talking about, the mighty works of God. The response is either one of two things acceptance or rejection and who ultimately decides that the spirit the spirit is who works in the hearts of men and women to cause them to hear the truth and respond why didn't those people hear why did they say these are just drunks because the spirit wasn't working in their lives the spirit causes the lost to finally wake up what are some other ways of the Scripture Scripture uses to say that? To be reborn. To become a new creation. To be made new. Was it Peter's eloquence that day that caused those people to be revived? Was it his education and his refinement? Was it his, was it his way with words? Remember, Peter was a fisherman. It wasn't any of those things. Who was it that convinced those men and women that day that were saved by the hundreds and thousands? The Spirit alone. Brothers and sisters, this is absolutely refreshing and liberating. It has to be. We don't have to be the next Charles Spurgeon, thankfully. I mean, no one can grow a beard like that, right? We don't have to be the silver tongued preacher from England. We don't have to be Billy Graham. We don't have to be any of those. And when we try to make our words the showcase, we might as well be like those who are mocking the Spirit, calling others drunk. Do you understand that if we rely on our own works at all, we're we're robbing the Spirit. The Spirit does the work. Since the Spirit goes ahead of us, We have absolute confidence as we minister that he will do exactly as he means to do. And what does he mean to do? We are called to be Christ's witnesses, are we not? Did not Jesus Christ say you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you? He means to use us in that work. And so in conclusion, the Spirit can and will use us he is capable of the work all alone, but he has chosen the, his, or he has chosen meager means with which to accomplish that purpose. What will he do? Well, what will we do as a result of that? How will we respond? Well, it's my hope that we'll respond in the right way, not like these fickle, hard-to-please Pharisees, but we'll be sensitive to the Spirit's work in our own lives. So that in turn, we can minister to others. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we pray that you would use us in this work. I know I, for one, am quick to dismiss the Spirit's work because it doesn't seem academic to me, because it doesn't seem concrete to me. And so, Lord, forgive me. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would show us more and more your work, the things you are doing in the people around us, the work you are doing in their hearts as you prepare them to hear the gospel and come home to the fold of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.